Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. paper my name just in case I forget. <laughs> That's what happens when you get my age. It is a privilege to be here and I thank Diane and Sherry for calling and asking would I do that. I'd do anything for them anyway. I love them so much. And my new best friends uh, who picked us up at the airport and were so nice and um, having dinner at your house today and then the privilege of hanging out with Stephanie who's one of my favorite She's a little sister I never got. You know, I used to pray, uh, please, God, let there be a baby in the house when I wake up. And I was the last in my family. And doggone if I didn't get her with her. <laughs> and she came old gray hair. <laughs> you know, I had to say that. You know. And I love being around Ellen because her jokes, she's just got such a great sense of humor. So irreverent, you know. <laughs> I, love her, I love her. And people I've seen here who've said, I heard you speak before, and I say, and you're still coming back, you know. <laughs> but we all need recovery, you know. Just repeat it and repeat it and repeat it, and that's what I do. And it's, why do I keep telling my story? Because I want to remember, so I'll stay on the path. And I know God's not finished with me. I had an incident this weekend, and I... Really, I try to work an honest program. I really try to work hard, and I work very hard at it. And my Stephanie and I were traveling. We had spoken, and um, we had spoken. Don't have to tell me. I remember where I was. <laughs> we had spoken in Augusta, Georgia, <laughs> and we got to... Um, the airport, no, and then we got to um, uh, Atlanta <laughs> after being late. Every plane we had this whole weekend of last weekend, they were all late, you know, hours in the airport. People say, oh, he's really glamorous doing all that talking and so forth. You're sitting in airport sometimes for two and three hours. Sometimes you're spending the night, you know, it was just, but anyway, we got there and our plane had left. And so, once again, now I've been in recovery for a long time, married to an alcoholic for a long time. We know better than to take advice from an alcoholic, right? <laughs> but old Stephanie calls her daughter, and she says, what do we do? We're stuck in this airport, and it doesn't look like there's anything that's going to go out. She said, you take Miss Dawn and put her ass in a wheelchair. <laughs> and push her around. So Stephanie's pushing me around. <laughs> then it got good to me. You know, the being in the wheelchair, and I'd say, Stephanie, could you stop and just get me a little cup of coffee? Could you put a little cream in my coffee? Stephanie said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you. I could eat you. Don't shut up. Then we finally got the guy, the guy who was working with getting us on the next plane. He felt so sorry for me because I had this sad look on my face, you know. And I was always, I want to pull up my driver's license. I'm 77. 
and I'm old and I'm traveling. I'm a widow living on a fixed income. Whatever you can do to get out there. And the guy put us to the first front of the line, you know, and, and, and so I reached up and hugged him like a ship. Thank, thank you, son. Thank you. Then we got to the gate and got up. And you know what I had the nerve to do to get out of the wheelchair and walk on to it? <laughs> I am not well. I had to get on my knees. I've been on my knees ever since I got here saying, God, why did I do that? <laughs> and God's not finished with me. I even talked to my sponsor today, you know, and I said, let me tell you about when she's, you know, <laughs> what else? You know? But I, I, I live an honest life. I think it's Stephanie's fault. <laughs> I think she's a bad influence on me. I think she is. No, we'll blame Laura. Let's blame Laura. Okay, not you. So. And I'm vulnerable because I'm an aged person. Anyway, it's just a blessing to be here. It's a blessing to be here. You know, I used to love to start my story when I married the alcoholic, and I looked so good. I looked so good. You would have thought I was a saint. You know, but I married him, and it was downhill. Um, well, here's what happened. We took our youngest son to be psychoanalyzed, and he was uh, having problems getting his life together. And I couldn't understand that because I'm the perfect mother, right? And the psychiatrist wanted to talk to Peter and I, and she said, well, what kind of parenting did either one of you receive? And Peter said, I received a zero or a one. And she looked at me, and I was sitting there with this great self-righteous look on my face. I'm a faithful member of Al-Anon and been in service for quite a while. And she said, what kind of parenting do you receive? And I said, I received eight or nine. She said, you're the problem. (laughs) She said, no one with an eight or nine would marry someone with a one or zero. I didn't like that. I really didn't like that because that changed my whole perspective, you know. It may not be all him, you know. I was born in a parsonage, great place to be born. Any preacher's kids, you know, we all know what it's like to grow in a parsonage, you know. And and, uh, my father's church had 300 members when he got there. And by the time I was about four or five, he had 6,000 members, one of the largest black churches in the country. He was an eloquent preacher eloquent preacher. And uh, my mother and father had eight children. My mother did not like children. <laughs> she said that frequently. But if you're Methodist, there's a limit to what you do. They couldn't play cards. They couldn't dance. Very seldom could they go to movies. And so they had eight babies. <laughs> I was the last. Every time my mother... My dad would build a church, my mother would have a baby. My dad would build a church, my mother would have a baby. And so they decided to buy the last church, and uh, so they stopped with me. And I was always disappointed because I wanted other children. I just wanted somebody to boss. It wasn't like I really wanted other children. But they were all bossing me, and so I wanted. Then I had this, these brothers and sisters. Mama lost three children before I was born. And I didn't understand what that did to her. It made her kind of distant from her children. She kind of put a little shield around her so that we wouldn't get too close. But she was great out there doing work with Daddy. But it was just like we don't touch, we don't hug, we don't do any of those things. Um, but we have prayer together and do those kind of stuff. And they were nice people. It wasn't like they were. It's just that she had this sternness about her. And I realize now that it had a lot to do with her inner fears. 
and what her life had been. Mama used to say if she not married a minister, she would have red hair, you know, and she'd do all this kind of different. She'd make these beautiful dresses and so forth. Instead, she was a minister's wife. And back then, minister's wives looked like little minister's wives, you know. And that's what she looked like. She was just a little lady like that. My father was only five foot five, but I thought he was a giant, you know. Then these brothers and sisters who were my role models, who I looked up to, I really admired them. Uh, my oldest sister, who was beautiful, she was thin, and I thought anybody who was thin was beautiful. The problem was she was a schizophrenic. And when you have a, someone in your home that has a mental problem or any kind of disability, all the, the family, it goes to trying to heal them or to keep them calm or whatever. And my sister would explode every once in a while with one of her tantrums or whatever she did. But one thing about her, she was so attractive and so gifted that she had many boyfriends. And I remember she was engaged to this guy, and she was going to marry him. And she took all the luggage and threw it down on his head. And I thought that was a real romantic thing. I said, that is romance. <laughs> That's real romance. And I want to watch that because when I grow up, I want to be able to treat a man just like that. You know, Because Mama was kind of boring. She was yes, dear, and all that kind of stuff. But my sister was fiery. Then I had this other sister who did nothing. She sat in a rocking chair and took care of us. And we called her the Gestapo with bloomers because she was so mean. <laughs> then my brothers were exciting people. You know, one wanted to be an actor but couldn't in the parsonage, so he did the next thing. He became a minister. And then the other one who <laughs> wanted to be a jazz player, he couldn't do that, so he played hymn and organ stuff. And then we'd all sit around and sing. We sounded like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. We were really great, you know. And then Daddy would leave, and we'd go into all the great worldly music. You know, we'd dance and sing. And we'd come back when Daddy said, look at them. They're all in there singing hymns. They are so devout, you know. And the people at the church used to say they're the most undisciplined children I have ever seen in my life. Mama said, no, no, they're just mischievous. They're not disciplined. And we'd have the man who was the janitor of the church, we'd lock him in the telephone booth and wouldn't let him out because he tried to tell us what to do. You know, nobody did that. And we'd, bought, we'd bring eggs to church on Sunday that we died, but we never boiled them. And we'd give them to people as presents. And they'd be coming up to my mother with this yellow stuff running down there, you know, and we'd just be standing smiling, looking innocent, you know. And I used to carry a purse to church. Because this was during the Depression, I carried a purse and I, I stuffed it with paper. And I'd stand at the back of the church and look cute. And I'd open the purse and I'd say, no pennies, please. <laughs> and people would put coins in there. And so then I could buy my friends. Because I never had a very nice disposition. Um, nobody really liked me, but they liked me when I had money. And my brothers liked me when I had money. And so I, this is the way I was growing up. I mean, this is, I never thought about an alcoholic. I just had my own little personality. Then my grandfather took care of me and uh, because mom and daddy were so busy doing God's work. And my grandfather sexually abused me. And I grew up with this feeling dirty and different. I used to join church every Sunday morning. My father used to tell the usher, keep her back. You know, I don't need a shill like you have in the circus, you know. I went up with tears rolling down my eyes, getting on my knees, saying, God, clean me up, and little children aren't dirty. It put a damage on my life. 
and I was terrified most of the time. I couldn't even sleep in a room without a light on. I can remember my parents coming in, turning the light off, and as soon as they left, I turned. I don't know how they ever had physical, you know, relations together, because I was up all night still listening, you know, for my grandfather to come into my room, and Grandpa had died by then. But it did taint my character. It really did. And I became this grossly obese fat little girl because I decided that what I could do was put this wall of fat around me and no one could get close enough to hurt me. Now on top of that, I already had a bad disposition. You know, I was not what you call the most lovable. I did things like I would write, my mama would say no to me about something and I'd write a note and leave it on her dresser. I wish Mrs. So-and-so was my mother. She's much nicer to me than you are. You know, and that hurt Mama, you know. But, you know, she hurt me. You know, I mean, that was my attitude. You know, it was just a very selfish attitude. And then I was about, learned that I could sing. Everybody in my family could sing, so it was no big deal. And uh, I was singing in the church choir, and we had this great choir director, and he gave me all the solos, and I was just so proud of myself. This was the first time anybody paid any attention to me because my brothers and sisters were the stars of the family. And so here I am singing now in the church and I've got all these solos and people are coming up to me and I was beginning to feel a little better about myself. And the choir director gave me a ride home and he took advantage of me. You know, the thing about that is when you don't have, when your self-esteem is low, um, it was like saying to me, oh, you know, so what? You know, I didn't go in the house and tell my mother. What am I going to do with that, you know? I remember going in the house and taking a shower, and my mother kept saying, you're going to wash your skin off. You're just in that shower so long. And the next month, we went to Europe that summer. Let me tell you what other kids we did. My grandmother was dying. My grandmother was dying, and my sister and I were praying that her death would just kind of hurry along so she wouldn't interfere with our trip. Isn't that just self-centered, you know? My husband used to say, I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. You know? <laughs> and that was just the nature, you know. Grandma, would you please, if you're going to get well, get well. But if you're not, we want to go on this trip. Anyway, I was sick the whole way on the trip, and I couldn't understand that, you know. And my mama thought, she's going to lose some weight because Dawn's not eating. And, you know, I had these dresses that looked like tents, and... um Sure enough, I, I may have lost 10 pounds on that trip, and I got back, and I started getting bigger and bigger. And um, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to tell my parents. And so 10 months from that date, I went to Women's Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. And I stood at the counter, and I said, there's something wrong with me. I've been in labor for two days, and I don't have a doctor, and I don't know what to do. And this man standing next to me said, I don't know who she is, but I'll take care of her. You know, God has always taken care of me, even when I wasn't aware of it. God has always sent someone, some person, some place to help me in my pain. And uh, I delivered a 10-pound, 4-ounce baby boy. Had all his fingers. He was just beautiful. And I had this great sense that now Mom and Daddy are busy traveling. I'm going to take care of this baby. I'm going to be mother superior to this baby. And they had to call my parents. My parents were in total shock. 
My father's saying, I'm a bishop of the church by this time. He said, this is, I've lived an exemplary life before these children. How could this happen in our family? But he said, everything's going to be all right. And I remember we got in the car on our way home from the hospital, and we stopped at the car, at the, at the light. And a woman opened the door of the car and snatched the baby out of my arms and closed the door of the car, and we drove on. My father said, get yourself together. My father said, your life is in front of you. My father said, it will be better later on. My father said, go back to school and make something of yourself. And I remember screaming and crying, and I couldn't get control of myself. If I understood now, I would have put me in a mental institution, but they didn't do that. Mama would come and sit by my bed sometimes, and I'd plead with her, just tell me where he is, tell me where he is. And she would say, I can't go against him. And I would go to different churches, and I'd look for him, and I'd push blankets back and see if the baby's hair grew like my baby's hair grew. And then one day I woke up, and I looked in the mirror, and I said, you know, the only thing wrong with me is I'm fat. So I was trying to fix the outside. Forget about the inside. I said, I'm fat. If I lose weight, everything will be okay. So this was in Detroit, Michigan, and I found a diet doctor. I so wonder I didn't qualify for a different program because he gave me diet pills and he gave me a shot in my arm. And uh, my mother used to say I was the laziest child. By the time I came along, my parents had help, so I never knew how to do anything. But when I had a diet pill, I could clean the whole house. I could mop the floors. I could do the walls. And it took about a year, and this grossly obese, homely young woman turned into a stone fox. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I look good. I don't mean I looked a little bit good. I mean, I looked so good, my brother said, you can ride in the front seat. Now, you know that was really good. <laughs> my brother's friends were coming over to them in the house. They were saying, man, what happened to your sister? You know, and my brothers once say she's still nutty, but, you know, they didn't say that. They just said, I, I don't know. They didn't understand. I, I lost weight eating watermelon and drinking black coffee. Every once in a while I'd faint, but who cares, you know. <laughs> I'm getting ready to look good, you know. I was, look, I just was gorgeous at some. I knew it wasn't going to last long because I could hear food over here calling my name. But it had to long, long enough for me to find a husband. Okay. So this guy from Pontiac, fine young man, he was pastoring a church in Pontiac, and he, he fell in love with the outside of me. I look good. Just look good. I'm saying, crazy. Inside, all kind of voices were speaking, you know. I was just, you know, I was having a wonderful, and I was so hungry. <laughs> I was so hungry. And this guy fell in love with the outside of me, because I look good in church, you know, I know how to clap, and I know how to, you know, say amen, and I know how to do that, and just preach, you know. And uh, he wasn't even that good a preacher, but he thought he was anyway. Um, so he said, you will be an asset to my ministry. He said, will you marry me? And I said, yes. Well, then this other young guy who was working for the government, and he was a really nice guy, too. He was really doing well. He had, his, had a little house he had already bought, you know. And uh, he, too, fell in love with the outside of me. And he said, Dawn, will you marry me? And I said, yes. <laughs> now, I didn't know what else to say. I mean, nobody was ever looking at me or calling me. You know, and here these guys were just left and right, you know, saying they loved me. You know, and I'm, yeah, okay. Well, there was this guy who just come home from the service. 
Chaim was just a little bit spacey. Just a little bit spacey. Um, they had asked him to leave the service that his drinking was interfering with his military career. And, uh, but he was exciting. I mean, really exciting. <laughs> really exciting. I mean, he, uh, the first time I saw him, I had stopped by his mother's house. I was on my way to a church meeting. And his mother brought in this platter of food. I mean, a platter of food that I thought it was for the family. And she put this in front of Peter. And he consumed it all. It was love at first bite. <laughs> I was so hungry. I'm still hungry, you know, because I have not eaten, because I know that I have to stay thin for somebody to want to marry me, okay? So, I, I mean, I just watched that man consume that food. It was just like, oh, wow. You know. Then he said, this is what he said. He said, you know I'm an alcoholic. And I said, that is really romantic, because a lot of your... Your writers, you know, are alcoholics. Your interesting people are alcoholics. Then the things like this would happen. He took me to places I'd never been before. He took me to a bar. And we'd walk in the bar and they'd say, Dr. Crawford. And I'd say, wow, he's a doctor too. <laughs> you know? Then we'd go to another bar and they'd say, is that Attorney Crawford coming in? I said, he is also a lawyer. <laughs> this man is brilliant, you know. Now, he said something to me. We were standing at a bus stop because he didn't have a car. <laughs> and, and he didn't have much of a job. Uh, but he said this word. We were standing there, and he said, I need you. <laughs> Bells went off like, I need you, I need you. I could hear it like it was just resounding through my spirit. I need you, I need you. I need you. <laughs> he said, Will you marry me? Well, I said yes. Now, here's the good part. See, he had just gotten out of service, right? My dad had told me that he would never marry again. My mother died of cancer a couple of years before. And uh, my dad said that I have loved your mother and I will never, never, never marry again. I thought that was the most romantic thing I'd ever heard, you know. So six weeks later when he brought his bride home... <laughs> I was just a little bit perturbed. I didn't quite understand that, you know. So the minister wanted to have a big wedding at his church. Well, I could have a big wedding because I knew somebody in there might be pointing at me and say, you know, this young woman had a child out of wedlock, you know. Um, or the other young guy, he wanted to have a wedding at our church. And I just couldn't go through that. I couldn't go through. First place, I didn't think I could stay thin long enough, you know, to 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 wait to put on the wedding dress because food was just bothering me terribly. And Peter said it would be okay if we eloped. Well, he also had not been drinking because even though he said he was an alcoholic, he didn't want me to know what alcoholic really is like. So he had been just not, we'd go to a place to have a cocktail, and I think he would take me home and have a drink, but he didn't, you know, I never saw him have any more than one cocktail. And it was so cool. This is really cool. Sitting up there at a bar, drinking a cocktail, you know, and I'd have a cigarette, didn't know how to smoke, you know. I really looked good that summer. I mean, I was looking good. Burning holes in my clothes. And that, but that's our, and I wouldn't wear my glasses, because, you know, men don't make passes, the girls. I never knew he was handsome, because I'd go like this to see. But Peter said this. So one of the things, you have the best 
bladder of anyone. I would never go to the bathroom because I was afraid if I come out of the bathroom, I wouldn't be able to find him. <laughs> so I'd go like this. He said he thought I had some kind of muscular disease or something because I'd miss a step, you know. We eloped. We eloped. And the interesting thing about that, uh, I remember the guy's name was Justice Bud in Toledo, Ohio. The downtown blew up the next day. I always thought there was some little correlation between arm bearing and that. And uh, the wonderful thing, too, was um, that night we went to the Barlow Hotel, and I had a bag of pastrami sandwiches, and Peter had a bag of German beer. So wonder we ever had children. I was so happy. I said, I got him. I can eat. And he said, I got her, I can drink. And the insanity began. I ate at him, and he drank at me. He said one day he left going to work, and he had this slim, attractive bride, and he came home and opened the door, and I had these glasses on, and I boomed up like this again, and I said, it's your job to love me no matter how I am. Because here's the thing, when you don't love yourself, you've got to depend on someone else to love you, you know. And that was his job. His job was to love me fatter than. And it was one of the sickest relationships you ever saw in your life, you know. Into that relationship, I got pregnant so soon. And Peter said, well, he said he was neither ready for parenthood, let alone ready to be a husband. And here, this baby was coming along. And he took me to the hospital when the child was uh, to be delivered. And then he forgot I was there. And I had to call my dad and ask him for money to get out of the hospital. And I was so angry, but this low self-esteem, I called my house and another woman answered the phone. Now, if I felt good about myself, I probably would have said, wait a minute, something's wrong with this relationship. But I said, oh, well, oh, well, that's just the way it is. And into that relationship, we bought three children, beautiful children, beautiful children. Peter and I were at one another's necks. You know, Peter used to say, oh, we stood like this. If one fell, the other would. You know, we leaned on one another. Peter said he couldn't live with me, but he couldn't live without me. We were the most interdependent people you've ever seen. Totally co- was it co-dependent. We were terrible. But nevertheless, we were this couple. And Peter came home one night from one of his drunks, and he hit his hand against the wall, and he said, I know some place where I can go. Now, when Peter was in the service in the early 50s, he had been in Georgia, and he had been sentenced to AA. Uh, but they wouldn't let him in. They put a door, a chair right in the door, and they said in Georgia, because of segregation, he can't come in, but because of the traditions, he can't go out. So Peter would have to sit there night after night listening to what you said in these rooms. And he was full of rage and anger, full of rage and anger. He was a brilliant young man. He didn't want to be there in the first place, but he had to be there. And then for them to close him at the door, he was really distressed. But that night, something came back to him. He said he remembered people sitting in that room with all kind of dreadful stories but they all talked about they didn't have to take a drink. And God has a sense of humor. Peter called them, and I had called the minister the night before because Peter had been gone for a couple of days, and I told him I needed somebody to come and talk with us, and he never showed up. 
AA guys were at our door in at least 15 minutes. There were two guys. There were two white guys. <laughs> God has a sense of humor, you know. One of them became a sponsor, you know. And the guy was interesting. He knew where to take Peter in Detroit. He took him to meetings where he knew he would be welcome and accepted. He took him to the old, uh, the meeting under the bridge in, in Detroit. Uh, it was a place where like winos went and something like that, you know. Peter went there and he said, the guy said to Peter, I'm taking, do you want to go to a meeting with me? And Peter said, I can't go, I only have one pair of pants and they're standing in the corner. Because he had a quaint little habit when he got drunk, he wet his pants. They called him Pissy Pete. So, <laughs> Pissy Pete, he said, if you want to go get sober, you climb in those pants and go with me. And Peter said, he got to that meeting and the hot air hit him and the odor came off of him and people came up to him and put their arms around him. This program does work. This program does work. And when my husband called before, it was still in the growing stage, you know. And things happened. But it certainly was a lesson to him, and it was a lesson to me. And we grew from the process that Peter went through. We went where there was help. Now, it took me a little while to get to Al-Anon. The reason it took me a little while to get to Al-Anon was that the first place, I thought we were going to be the ideal family now. You know, that it would be Peter and I, and he'd come home, we'd, we'd just have a little family thing, you know. He'd be delightful with the children, and it was just wonderful, you know. Well, every night he came home and went to a meeting. And AA folks were calling my house left and right, you know. And uh, not only were they calling my house, women were calling my house. AA women. I knew something was going on. So he went to the meeting at 7 o'clock, and he didn't get home till midnight. Now, you know, that's too long for a meeting. <laughs> so I decided uh, with a friend of mine, we'd go to the old Han and Y in Detroit, Michigan. And we went for about three meetings, and then I understood the program thoroughly. <laughs> and uh, we didn't have literature like you have now. We had a little blue book we used to read. And we took our little blue book, and we went to the same place where Peter's meeting was. Wasn't that a coincidence? <laughs> and here's what she said to me. She said, would you... Want to know whether Peter's fooling around? I said, yes. She said, well, what we'll do is we're carrying a blanket. You're riding with me. And by this time, Peter had a car. And she said, you lay down in the back seat of your husband's car, and you put the blanket over yourself. And then when he leaves, you'll know if he's fooling around. And I said, that is the most brilliant idea. <laughs> and I said, will you be my sponsor? <laughs> Needless to say, I had a slow recovery. Um, but that's what happened, you know. Uh, we started the meeting there, and that was... AA guys would come up sometimes and say, well, we're getting ready to have a banquet or something, and you ladies, will you cook the food for us? You know, because we were like the auxiliary, you know. But I was reading all the stuff in this little book, plus I read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I underlined all the places where Peter needed help. Now, I, I couldn't talk in the meetings. When I tried to talk in the meetings, all the muscles in my face would shake. I was just such a, just a basket case of fear. But when I get in that car on the way home, I could tell him, this is what you should be doing. And I'm really trying very hard to teach you to be a good husband. You know, he didn't seem to listen, but I was working on him, you know, constantly. And uh, it was just a terrible, I was just a, a terrible, well, here's, the people would call, and they'd say, Peter and I would be fussing, and I'd pick up the phone and I'd say, hello? 
is there anything I can do to help you? You know? And then I'd hang up and we'd go right back to the fuss, you know? And the kids would be in the closet hiding, you know, afraid of these people, you know? And I'd say the next morning, they'd say, Mama, what happened to you and Daddy? And I'd say, oh, nothing. Nothing. We love one another dearly. These kids, I gave them so many mixed messages. People who have children in the program and they say, oh, it didn't bother my children at all. I'm looking at you. You know, because <laughs> there's no way in the world they can live in a house with that kind of confusion and not be traumatized by it, you know. Uh, my children were totally messed up by Peter and my actions. We were in the program, and he was Mr. AA. He just started. He was working the first and the twelfth step. He didn't need those lesser steps. He said they were for people who were not intellectual giants like he. And I was I was sponsoring people left and right, and they would quit me in a minute, you know. I was just as nutty as a fruit. I was teaching them how to get even with their husbands, you know. I, was a, I had a message for everyone. My kids called us the fig trees. We looked good. There's a story in the Bible about these trees that are blossoming, but there's nothing there. And the master goes over to pick some fig, and there's nothing there. And that's where we were. We looked good. Now, I was just grossly obese, so I, I carried my weight. I looked, you know, I looked responsible. Nutty, just nutty. Full of fear, full of hate, full of self-pity, full of resentments, full of all those character defects that just are killing me. And then my daughter one day took me to this church. My kids have been Baptist, Methodist, Episcopal, <laughs> Catholic, uh, um, Luther, not Missouri Synod, but the other one. Uh, they've been everything because we were always trying to fill this hole. You know, if you've got this hole in your soul, you've got to go somewhere to fill it. And if you're not working the steps, you think you've got to fill it out there with other stuff. And so we were taking these kids to these different churches. And one time Lisa, the oldest girl, was selling cookies for the Jewish synagogue. You know, and uh, she was trying to fill the hole. She was doing the best she could, you know. She had a crazy mother. You didn't know. And I was always on this child in particular because she reminded me of me. You know, she had the... the eating disorder, you know. I was always trying to put her on a diet. Meanwhile, I'm eating, but I'm putting her on a diet. It was just amazing, the insanity in my house, you know. And then this kid took me to this church, and a woman got up at a white Episcopal church and talked about her eating disorder, and she talked about eating white flour and, and sugar. And she talked, and I remember sitting over there weighing 100 pounds more than I weigh today, and I kind of wallowed over to her during this, you know, Tell me what you do, you know. I have a friend who really needs some help. <laughs> I know this lady needs some help. <laughs> and uh, my my whole program came alive, you know. Uh, my sponsor said to me, Dawn, when are you going to work those steps? And I said, I work them every day for Peter. <laughs> you know, I am working so hard to change that man. And I made a decision. I said, if I ever get my life together, I'm going to leave him. And I didn't know that he made a decision. He said, when the youngest child is 18, I'm out of here. I remember when our youngest child was born, Peter was so angry. And he said he felt like he was sentenced to another 18 years, you know, of living with me. Well, I thought I was a delight. You know, I really did. I thought I was a lovely person. I was either depressed or euphoric, you know. I was depressed. I was sitting in a dark dress next to the door in a rocker and Peter would come in and he'd say, hi. And he'd say, how are you? And I'd say, fine. 
He said, can't you smile? No. no. That's sadness, you know. But when I stopped eating the sugar and the white flowers, like lights went on. I just, I just began to see the world, you know. And it wasn't all gray, you know, and it wasn't all, it was, it was a world. And I felt that I deserved some recovery. And my sponsor said, when are you going to work those steps? And I began to realize I am powerless. I'm powerless over these people. The children are growing up. I'm powerless over this husband. I am just powerless, but I'm not helpless. You know, there are people in these rooms who have come and kept coming back, fired me and got better. You know, I have a sponsor who was doing better. I had, everybody was getting better except me, but I kept coming back. And that's the good news. And I tell that to people all the time. Don't give up on anybody. You may have some crazy woman. They used to call me Crazy Dawn. There was some crazy woman sitting in your room just babbling. It could be me, you know. Don't give up on her because maybe in God's time she'll hear the word and God will transform her and change her and make her into a channel. Just be patient, you know. And be patient with yourself, too, because we're all on this journey together and we don't know how long it's going to take. Well, I began to change. I began to change. And old Peter began to grow. And he began to grow not only in his life works. He was a janitor when I married. And by this time, he was directing one of the first HMOs in the country. That's when they were good. And uh, he was really doing a really good job. Still crazy, though, because he wasn't working the steps. But my sponsor said, why don't you leave him alone? And you work over here on you. And he let him work on himself. And that's what I did. I began working on me. I put on the mirrors in my house, and I still have them. Wherever I move, this first thing I put on, you are looking at the problem. You are looking at the problem. And I also, my sponsor used to tell me that when the, when, when the, the mirror steams up, right, so what? <laughs> you know, so that when I come in there in the morning and I'm getting ready to brush my teeth and I'm saying this and this and so forth is happening, so what? God loves it. It's going to be all right. You know, just let it go. It's going to be all right. Well, these kids kept growing up. Here's, oh, let me tell you, I want to tell you this story first. See, that's the problem when you get old, you ramble. Uh, I was, I was working these steps and I got to the sixth and seventh step and I just, you know, I am so full of self-pity. I am so full of rage. I'm so full of anger. I'm so full of resentment. I'm just a big ball, you know, like a, like a sore, you know? So, um, one of the chief ones was jealousy. Now, I know nobody else has ever had this jealousy thing, you know, it would hit my feet, and it would just come up, and I would just get larger and larger, and so, um, Peter told me, he said, um, Dawn, I've hired a new secretary, and he said, she's a much older woman, and I said, because I was hoping she'd be about my age now, and, uh, he said, no, he said, uh, she is, a, she's a senior, so we were entertaining his staff, and I was being very gracious, and I'm shaking hands with people, and this young woman comes down the aisle, and uh, she comes up to me, and she says, Mrs. Crawford, I'm your husband's new secretary. She had a mini skirt on. She was looking good. And I still had on the tent dress, you know. And I looked at her, I said, no, you're not. And, and, and Peter was over there and he rushed over to where I was and he was dragging me out of the room and I'm saying you said she was oh Peter said Peter said she didn't look like that when I hired her <laughs> no, 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 no. and we got in the car and all the way home I am ranting I mean I'm just going off how dare you do that to me how could you hire this young 
attractive woman. How could you? Peter said, does this have anything to do with your self-esteem? And I said, what? And I ran in the house, tears coming down my eyes, called my sponsor. said, let me tell you what he said. He said, does this have anything to do with your self-esteem? And he, she said, does it? And I hung up on her. <laughs> and I got on my knees. And I got on my knees. And I said, I can't seem to do anything about this, you know. I can't do anything about it. And it ruins my life. I'm watching everything he does, who he talks with, what's going on. You know, I'm checking his wallet. I'm doing all these things. I know you all have never done those things. You know, I'm doing things that I'm so ashamed of, so ashamed of. And I said, I can't do anything about it. And I got on my knees. And it's up to you, Lord. Do with me what you will, but please, please, if you'll relieve me of this. You know, we were at a retreat about a month or so later, and Peter was standing over in the corner talking to some young women. And all I felt in my heart was love for Peter. I knew if God could do that, he could stop me from eating compulsively. I knew if God could do that, he could make me a nice person. I knew if God could do that, he could change me from the inside out. I knew if God could do that, he could do anything, anything. I fell in love with my husband. That wasn't in my plan. That wasn't in my plan. We began to go around speaking and carrying the message. What a change. What a change that had been. I was able to talk in front of groups. What a miracle that was. And here these kids kept growing up, you know, and I said, oh, this is great. And Lisa came to me, and I'm now on the point I'm going to make amends to them for all the stupid stuff I've said to them and done. You know, Lisa used to say, the sun's shining outside, and if I'm laying on the sofa eating compulsively, she'd say, Mama, can we go out? And I said, no, it's raining. And she said, Mama, it's not raining. I said, yes, it is. I'm the mother. I have the information. You know, the kids were just totally messed up. Anyway, Lisa said, Mama, there's something I want to tell you. And I said, she's going to tell me she's pregnant. And when she tells me she's pregnant, see, I'm going to be Mother Superior. I'm going to say, oh, great, sweetheart. I'll raise the child. You know, I'm going to be such a wonderful grandmother to this baby. And she said, I'm gay. I said, no, you're not. Grew up in the car stage, you all. You know, read those pages, you know. And um, Lisa left. I didn't know where Lisa was for a while. I'd get a call from all different places, and um, I would worry about her, and I'd cry. And my sponsor said to me, you get the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you read page 447. And you read it every day of your life. You read it from that point to the end of the chapter. You read it, she said, because if you can't accept somebody else, you need to look at what's wrong with you. And I kept reading, and maybe five years passed, and one day the phone rang, and it was Lisa crying on the other end. And she said, Mama, Mama, I'm suffering from the disease of alcoholism, and I need to come home, and I need to bring my friend. And I said, Come on home, Lisa. And Peter and I were at the airport when she came home, and she had on this little outfit she looked like, dressed out of the missionary basket, you know. But we threw our arms open and took Lisa and Nancy in, and we watched them get sober living in our house. God did a miracle to those young women. You know, what a gift. They didn't change, but Peter and I changed. You know, we would say, bless them, change us. Bless them, change us. And so Lisa has had 27 years of sobriety now. What a gift she is. 
about 20 years ago, she, no, 20 years, seven years ago, she called me and she said, I need to talk to you, Mama, this is very important. And so I went in to be with Lisa for a couple of days and she said, I'm going to get married. And I said, well, that's nice. You and Nancy have been together for 20 years now. She said, no, I'm marrying a man. <laughs> and I said, let me call my sponsor. I said, I said, well, isn't that nice, you know? I didn't know what to do, you know? My sponsor said, page 447. <laughs> she said, you are not responsible for who Lisa falls in love with. Well, here's the problem. See, I had become the gay mother of the year. I, I'm marching in all the parades, you know, I'm carrying the banner, you know, and my children, you know. I'm, you know, carrying the banner, you know. People are sitting around our table at Thanksgiving, you know, we don't know who they are, male or female. We're just having a great time. I'm sitting at the bed with young men who are dying of AIDS, you know, just just doing the thing, you know. I'm I'm the gay mother of the year. And she married a man. Well she was so happy. She was so happy. They had six months together and then he died. But she had that experience and I never said anything other than I love you. You know, and we are so close and still are close. I watched her lose all her business. She had become one of the executives in one of your major companies. She lost everything, lost her home, went through things like Peter and I had gone through. Because Peter and I, in the midst of our program, lost everything. When our program got serious and we were both working the steps, it was like everything was stripped from us. We went down to food stamps, you know. And you know what? We got richer. We got richer on the inside because we thought at one time it was the things that were making us better. And we realized it's our relationship with God that makes us better. And Lisa went through an experience like that. And during that experience, she never thought about drinking. Never thought about drinking. And now she's back with one of your Fortune 500 companies and back on the road to success again. And one of my pensions was cut recently, and so she started sending me a check. And I said, sweetheart, I don't need this. And she said, but I need to send it to you. And I said, okay, okay. Because the other part is in this program learning how to receive as well as give. I'm a great giver, but I don't know a lot about receiving. And it's been such a joy. She's so proud of herself that she helps her poor elderly mother. Living <laughs> on the you know. And then this middle child of mine, this middle child of mine, in the process of making amends to her, was just to learn to accept her as she is. She's always been odd. You know, she's the kind of kid, I remember when she was a little girl, and she'd look up at me, and she'd torn up something, and I'd hit her on the butt, and she'd say, a big lady like you, hitting a little girl like me. <laughs> she just a... Uh, she was, the truth of the matter, she was smarter than I was. She doesn't have more wisdom, but she's smarter than I am. She's a, she can manipulate you, you know. And, and until I learned, my, pro, my, my sponsor helped me to learn not to buy into her stuff, just to say, hmm. When they tell me something that I would have gone off the wall, I say, wow, that certainly is interesting. <laughs> tell me how you sell that, you know. And then I go to a meeting. You know, and I'm a better person for it because whether it works out or not, they can't blame me. I've just been there to give them unconditional love and good support, you know. And old Lisa, Alma, um, she uh, went away to college. By this time, Peter had, we'd moved to the Washington area where he was going to work in the Carter administration with the health care plan, and they didn't have one. That's when Peter lost his job. He was out of work for two years, and I went to work, and I saved every penny I made for her tuition because we promised this child 
a college education, and she went away to school, and she came back after a semester and said that she changed her mind, that she wasn't going to go to college, that uh, she knew for sure what she was going to do for the rest of her life. And I said, that's wonderful. She said, I'm going to be a waitress. <laughs> now, there's nothing wrong with being a waitress, but this child had never cleared a table. <laughs> and so my sponsor told me, she said, just love her, you know. And I said, well, Alma, you just be a good waitress. And Peter and I went to the restaurant where she was waiting tables. Never seen anything like that in my life. Uh, she brought us the wrong food. <laughs> and she said, eat it. <laughs> she was muttering, you know, I hate people that complain. I hate people that complain. The man at the table next to me said, that is the worst waitress I have ever had in my life. And we didn't say it was our daughter. We just said, oh, you know. And we got up and left. We didn't leave a tip. We just... We got in a car and there was a bumper sticker that said, live and let live. Peter said, I'm going to a meeting. I said, drop me off in my meeting. That's Alma. You know what I mean? Then she came home and uh, she said maybe she was going to do something different. But she was standing at a bus stop and a man put a knife in her neck and raped my baby and took her into an alley. And uh, um, thank God for people like you all because I had worked through my stuff. I had worked through my abuse issue where my grandfather was concerned and I had worked through the choir director issue. And I could go to my daughter and put my arms around her and just let her weep in my arms. And I could allow her the privilege of the journey of getting well, you know. And the next year, she went to Women's Episcopal Church Seminary and studied for a year and then came back and uh, went to Trinity and finished her undergraduate degree and then got her Master's in Divinity and was ordained in the United Church of Christ and, and in the Unitarian Church. And um, she said to me, Mama, there's something you ought to know about myself. And I said, what's that, sweetheart? She said, I'm gay. And I said, I'm happy to. I'm back marching I'm back marching you know and she started a church in uh, Chicago for gay people who have been closed on the outside of church experiences and uh, what a beautiful thing it was I was the they called her me Mother Crawford you know all the gay men told me how to dress you know Right. And the gay women hit on me. <laughs> I had a great time. I loved them. I loved them much. But they all liked my husband, too. <laughs> so what difference. But I had a great time being that, in that experience, you know. And uh, they adopted a little girl. And she and her partner broke up. But uh, she has this marvelous child who's just a joy to my life, you know, just a joy to my life. And about 20 years ago... Um, uh, my sister called me and she said, I need you to come because she thought she was dying. And she said, you know, this boy that I adopted when he was two years old is the son that was taken away from you. And I was reunited with my firstborn. Here's the good news. I didn't need him anymore. That hole that I talk about, that emptiness, had been filled through these steps. This God of my understanding had filled me to overflowing. And I had this marvelous relationship with this boy now. My sister's still his mother, but I'm his birth mother. And I was with him last month. I was out in Seattle. My granddaughter graduated from Cornish, the music school out there. And she's a um, music major. And uh, she writes sacred music. 
and the symphony has has used her music. They played her music. This little 21-year-old girl, and uh, they've just hired her to do an orchestration for some big thing the Episcopal Church is doing. And I would have missed all that had I not been in these rooms. I would never have had that experience of being able to be a good grandmother to my two other grandchildren out there. And they love me dearly, you know. And you know why they love me? It's because I don't need anything from them. I'm a good grandma. I just give unconditional love. I don't have to spank them like I did little Lisa or Alma. I just love them, you know. And I thank God every day for the blessings that he has bestowed in my life. My life is rich. My life has been blessed, really blessed, you know. And then about ten years ago, oh, David was my youngest child. Beautiful boy, beautiful baby. Oh, he was such a pretty baby. I remember having him out one day, and the lady said, that is the prettiest little boy I've ever seen. And he said, and you're the funniest looking lady. <laughs> said, oh. We thought he was something was wrong with him because he didn't talk till he was two years old. And my other kids had talked so fast, and I took him to a doctor to see what was wrong with him. And the doctor said, I don't think there's anything wrong with him. He would say, mm, and everybody would run and get his stuff, you know. <laughs> and he'd say, uh, uh, and my girls would say, oh, that means he wants a drink of milk. You know, and he'd say, uh, 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 they said, that means water. So, uh, 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 that's cereal. Uh, uh. And so he was just like, uh, 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 all the time. So the doctor said, when you go home, take him home and don't do anything. Just, you know. So we brought David home, and he came home, and he went to the cupboard, and he said, uh, nobody moved. And he said, uh, and nobody moved. He said, may I have a glass of water? <laughs> then he wouldn't stop talking. We called him Walter Cronkite. He just went on and on. He told everybody's business. He just talked and talked and talked. And he was a gifted singer. And we'd take her to places he'd sing. And people would say, is he the one? Because he had this little angelic face. You know, he looked so cute. And he would just sing these great hymns. And, and he'd sing spirituals. And people would say, oh, he's so wonderful. And then he'd leave there and he'd go into singing Bessie Smith and all the other stuff that was singing. And said, a little boy, he's just like his mother. And that family we grew up in. But anyway, he was a joy, just a joy to me. And about, I guess, 15 years ago, he said that, uh, he said, you know, I'm HIV positive. And, and uh, so we had an experience with David. You know, uh, one night uh, we had finally, we had to uh, ask him to leave because he also was having a problem with alcohol. This was before the before he knew he was uh, HIV positive. And uh, he called me one night and he said, Mom, I think one of your miracles has happened. And I said, what is that, son? He said, I'm in a gay bar. He said, I'm drunk as a, a skunk. <laughs> he said, and I came out of the stall and I said, I, I, I don't know what my name is, I'm so drunk. And a man came up to him and said, young man, you don't have to live like that. He said, I'm going to take you to a 12-step meeting. Now, would you have ever, ever expected your son to meet a 12-step person in a gay bar who would 12-step him and take him to a bar, I mean, to a meeting? See, that's what happens when you let go of these children, you know? As long as I was trying to manipulate and figure out this way, drop a hint here, have somebody call, let him grow. And old David went to a meeting, and I watched him grow. I watched him one night try to kill himself when he was a youngster and he was in school because uh, they used to put a badge on his back and said faggot. 
And he was just so wounded, just so wounded. But I remember him saying to me, Mama, I'm going to stay around and wait and see what the end will be. And that's what he did. You know, I watched my boy. I came in from Chicago. I was visiting Alma. Peter said, come in quickly. David's not doing well. And I went to the hospital and David said, Mama, do you think this is it? And I said, I don't know, David. And I sat with him and a doctor came in and he said, you go talk with the doctor, Mama. And I talked with the doctor. Uh, my daughter and I, he wanted us to be the ones who make decisions about his life. And the doctor said he's in a tremendous amount of pain. And he said, we think he can last for three days. But if we increase the morphine tonight, he'll probably go tonight. And so I went in and talked to David. And I said, David, let me tell you what the doctor said. And David said, you know, Mama, if God loves me, he's not going to leave me in this kind of pain. And he said, if I could have loved anyone one-tenth as much as you've loved me, it would be more than enough. And he said, I'm so grateful that my dad and I went out every Wednesday and we worked out our differences. And he said, I'm grateful for these sisters who have been with me all the way. And he said, Lisa, will you sing There is a Bomb in Gilead that heals the wounded heart? And Alma read a scripture and prayed. And I sat next to his bed, and I put my arm around him, and I sang, Sleep, Little One, Sleep, and Mother's Watch Shall Keep. And um, I said, It's okay to go, David. And I held his arm in my arm while he took his last breath. You know, I'll miss David the rest of my life. I really miss him. You know, Every time some big thing happens, when, especially when Obama was selected, I wanted to call, David, I got news for you, you know? It happened. There's a black man. I have all this kind of great news. Some movie star or something. I got to call David, you know? Some big life experience because he was a news junkie. I want to call him. And then I realized he's, David's gone, you know? But not really. Not really. See, my faith tells me that I'll see him again. And that's the good news. And also my faith tells me that I had the privilege of loving David Crawford for 33 years. 33 years. What a gift. He used to say to me one time, I said to him, David, when I get 50, I'm going to look as good as Lena Horne. And he said, you don't look that good now, Mama. So thank you, son, for sharing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Peter said to him one night, Peter says, David, I know it's going to be hard on you. you know, to, when you have a father who's successful, I know it's going to be really difficult, very difficult for you. And David said, I won't have that problem. <laughs> Not with you, Dad. <laughs> David, Peter said, I wouldn't slam a door as hard as David slams door for us. But he just, he had a great sense of humor. We just loved him. <laughs> he said, one day his sister came out of the room, and she had her robe on, but she wasn't closed. And David said, no wonder I'm gay. I've seen enough. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that boy. I just had so much fun with that child. You know? And then about, I guess it was nine years ago, Peter started failing. He had emphysema. And uh, it was just a marvelous time in our life. We had good programs, and people brought meetings to our house. And uh, we were speaking. The last time we spoke was in West Virginia. And I was pushing Peter up this hill. The AA guys were up on the corner. And then... He's in a wheelchair, and I'm pushing him up the hill, and I'm kind of like, oh, oh. and uh, they said, Don, don't do that. Peter said, oh, she's okay. <laughs> she can do this, you know. 
Yes, thank you, Peter. You know, thank you. He's just a generous heart, you know. He just, he was, he was a funny man. He had, he, I remember one time we were, um, we were had a, uh, it was a wonderful service. We were at this Methodist church and they were doing the kiss of peace. And, uh, I put my hands and I said, may the peace of Christ be with you. And Peter said, patty cake, patty cake. <laughs> Just serious, you know, went through the whole thing, and I started laughing, and I couldn't stop, and I got a nap, I put it up, and I just and the women said, oh, she really takes this piece of pizza. Said, yes, she does, you know. I mean, he could make me laugh when nobody else could make me laugh, you know. But we would sit in the room, and we'd talk about our journey. We talked about those years when it was awful, just awful. When we were at one another's soaps, and we talked about the grace of God that interfered, interfered. Inter, intervened in our lives, and, uh, not interfered, but intervened in our lives, and and had just transferred us to be just loving human beings. You know, where where um, I didn't have to tell him what to do anymore. You know, and it was very interesting. I started doing things like he couldn't lift stuff anymore, so I was doing all the stuff that he used to do. You know. And uh, something would break down, and I was fixing it. And I said, gee whiz, I'm doing everything. And then it dawned on me, what a blessing, because when he goes, I'll be able to do stuff that I didn't know I could do before. You know, I knew how to take care of everything. You know, and uh, one day he called me. He said, Don, we were all sitting in the room with my daughters and, and uh, Peter and I, and he said, I want an undertaker to come to the house. And so the undertaker came to the house, and Peter said, now here's, I want you to understand everybody what I want. He said, I want an uh, open funeral. I want the casket open. And uh, I want my sponsor to open it up. And then we have Sharon, you know. And don't close the casket until they're ready for the real service because I might want to share. Undertaker left. He said, you know, I really don't like that man. I don't think I can work with him. I said, honey, you won't be here. (laughs) Then I had one of those moments. I was sitting in the room with him, and all at once it hit me. I said, oh, my God, he's going to leave me. And tears started streaming down my eyes. I just, he's going to leave me. And I rushed over, and I put my arms around him. I said, honey, you're really going to leave? Peter said, call your sponsor. I'm trying to die. I love that man. I love that man. We had to take him to the hospice the last couple of days because I just couldn't lift him anymore. And we got to the door of the hospice, and uh, Peter said, stop. And I said, what is it, honey? He said, look over there in the corner. He said, there's David. He's coming to get me. Isn't God gracious? Isn't God loving? I serve a gracious, loving, loving God. So Peter would sit in that room and they'd have a meeting for him and he'd laugh and talk with us and then he'd look over in the corner and he'd talk to David for a bit. And then the night came that we knew he was gone. And the girls were around the bed and a couple of my friends from the program and we all just sang hymns together. You know, when I go, I want to go with that kind of atmosphere, you know. I mean, you know, sometimes it seems hard to talk about death, but it's a part of life, you know. We come, all of us are going to end up there whether they like it or not, you know. I don't know how soon, but you know, not today. But uh, if whatever, you know, I want to die with that kind of joy of recovery in my heart, you know. 
that he died sober. He died loving this program. He died grateful for what people like you had done in our lives and how you all had helped us become a loving family, you know. He died, you know, what a great sense of joy we had in our family. You know, we had a great celebration, you know. And I am now 77. I was 69 when old Peter died. And uh, Alma said to me, Mama, you shouldn't be living in Reston by yourself. Now, here I'm living in Reston by myself. I've been there 26 years. Got meetings every day in the week. Uh, got friends everywhere. Um, people cooked for me the whole time. Peter was dying, time Dave was dying, didn't have, you know, people just wonderful. You know how you program people. It was just a wonderful experience. But she said I should come to be near her. This is Alma. This is the one that said a big lady like you. <laughs> so she had this little baby, though. This little baby who I just love babies, especially when I can take them back to you. I just love this baby. And so I moved to Chicago. I moved on November, I mean, on September the 10th. And September the 11th, I wouldn't have been able to get out of town, you know. And uh, I got there, and we were there for about four years together. Just had a wonderful time. Uh, and then Alma got a call to go teach at Berkeley uh, Theology. And she said, I don't know whether I should leave you, Mama, because Daddy told me not to leave you. And I said, oh, please, you know. Uh, it's not like she was really with me when she was there because she's busy doing her church work and stuff. And I said, you know, you have to grow spiritually, so go on. So they left me there, and I'm here there by myself. i got a program. I've got friends. You know, I've built another relationship with people out there. And I'm having a nice time. Then she moved back to someplace else, and now she's getting ready to leave Pittsburgh. And she's in my house now. She's been there with me for three weeks. I never thought I could live with Alma for three weeks. <laughs> but because of this program, we were having such a nice time. She's weird as can be still. Uh, but, but you know what? I'm weird. So it's wonderful. I pick up, and she lays down. You know, But I don't do it so that I'm offending her. You know, and the cleaning lady came today, and uh, I said, what time did she get there? She said, she got here at 10, but she's still here. <laughs> she said, maybe I ought to give her some extra, because that place, it must be, it must be awful. You probably can blow it up when I go home. But, you know, it's not that important anymore. What's important is building a relationship, you know, and that's what I've built with these girls. I have wonderful, I have a wonderful relationship with my son. I'm so grateful for what this program, I'm constantly working that 10th step. I, you know, I, I look at myself on a daily basis so that anything that's happened in my life, I can make amends quickly. I don't want to carry stuff from yesterday to today or to the next day. You know, if I'm doing something that's un, if it, like that experience we had this weekend, I got to get rid of it quickly. You know, and I have to go to God to clean me up and clear me up so that my life is joyous, you know. I deserve to have a joyous life at this point. I sponsor the most wonderful women in the world. And they all know I'm weird and they love me anyway. I just think that's such a gift, you know. And, and, and they think I'm a spiritual giant. I'm a spiritual midget. But I love God. I love God with all my heart, you know. I do meditate and pray in the morning. I get on my knees and turn my will and my choices over to God, you know, and I do try to carry the message. 
I do those things that God calls me. I have had a spiritual awakening. I've discovered that God really loves me, but he loves everybody else, that he is concerned about you just as much as he's concerned about me, and that he wants the best for us. And if he didn't, why would we be sitting up here on a Wednesday night in Butte, Montana, wherever I am? <laughs> living on a fixed income. Okay. In Creston View, Colorado. You know, it's funny, because I travel so much, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I say, okay, God, where am I? Where am I? Just let me be able to find my way out of here. But you know, I don't have any big worries. Isn't that good? I do. I'm always telling Stephanie, though, I'm getting old. And she just says, you're not getting old. You're not getting I am getting old. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's nothing wrong with it. I want to do it gracefully. You know? I still think I look good. You know, I mean, I do. I do. But that's not, that's not, I, I want to look like recovery. You know? And I look better on the inside than I do on the outside. You know, and I come here and I have the chance to hug people and love them, and that's what it's all about. You know, we have been given this roadmap out of hell, and that's these 12 suggested steps that have the possibility of transforming and changing each of us and making us all into the people God wants us to be so that we can experience joy in our life. We're going to have problems. That's what life is about. There's going to be ups and downs. God doesn't send these to us. Life sends them to us. But when life sends them, God is present there to help us step by step by step through them. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for letting me come. And I want to end with this. I had to write it down because I always mess up stuff. I give poems and I go into different kind of... I have one hymn I'm trying to quote, and it's the one from the last week, and it's not... Who cares? Who cares? Pardon from sin and a peace that endure. Thine own dear presence to lead and to guide. Faith for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings are mine and ten thousand beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, not wanted, all I have needed, God's hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness to you, to you, to you, and to me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.